From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society, a podcast that celebrates the big ideas and great thinkers who have shaped our world. Today, we will hear from two of the leading scientists who have been involved with oceanography and climate change. First, we will hear from Dr. Walter Munk, who has been described as the Einstein of the oceans. He's gonna talk about his career that spanned from World War II to the present, some of his major accomplishments, and the history of climate science. Then I'll discuss climate change, policy, and its denialist with Dr. Charles Kennel, distinguished professor and director emeritus at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. But before we begin our episode, I have some sad news to report. I met with Walter for this interview in the fall, but just as this podcast was about to be released, on February 8th, he passed away at the age of 101. We decided to delay the launch of the episode so we could put together a special tribute to Walter. At the end of our episode, we have put together a series of short interviews with Walter's colleagues and former students who all reflect upon his legacy. And I invite you all to keep listening at the end of the episode. I'm sitting here in lovely La Jolla, overlooking the Pacific Ocean at the home of Walter Monk. Dr. Monk is Professor Emeritus of Geophysics and currently holds the Secretary of the Navy, Chief of the Naval Operations Oceanography Chair at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Monk delivered a talk at the APS in 2013 in which he covered his remarkable career that spanned the 20th century and continues into the 21st century, including his involvement in wave prediction during World War II. So you were born in Austria, uh, came to New York uh, for high school, and then found your way to Caltech. You know why I was sent to New York? No. My uncle was one of the earliest skiers using the Alberg technique of Christianias instead of Telemarks, Mm -hmm. like the Norwegians did. And uh, so I learned skiing as a very, very young boy and loved it. And I was almost flunking out of high school in Austria. And my mother got very upset for good reasons. And she then learned one evening from an American couple who was having dinner with us in Vienna that they had a son just like Walter. He didn't study, he played. And so I was sent to the school that he was going to, Silver Bay in New York, in Lake George, and had a wonderful time and started a ski club there and was president. Did the studying happen as well? (laughs) I managed to graduate and I guess I had enough sense to, after I graduated, to do some studies. I went to night school at Columbia, and then I drove out 
I had fallen in love with Spanish names of California towns like San Marino and Pasadena. I thought that's where I want to go. And I bought a little car and drove to New York and showed up at the dean's office at Caltech. The director of Scripps was Harold U. Sverup, a Norwegian explorer. He'd been in the Arctic for seven years and came back and then became director of Scripps. And he assigned me a, a job of looking over some data that had just been taken by the by a Scripps vessel in the Gulf of California and became my master's thesis. My romance with a particular girl ended, but I had fallen in love with Scripps and oceanography and I was back next summer asking whether Harold Sverdrup would take me on as a student. And I said, I'm going to be a student here next year. He said, let me pull your file. I said, there isn't any file. And he was so amazed. He said, well, if you want to take a chance, you can study for a month for an entrance exam. And if you make it, which I don't think you will. Uh, I did, and I did. <laughs> and that's why I'm here. You were involved in a lot of important work during World War II, especially dealing with wave prediction. It's work that influenced decisions surrounding D-Day and a number of other battles. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did? I learned at an early time that we were going to have landings in West Africa mm -hmm. in winter in December. And I was permitted to come down and watch practice. You know the abbreviation LCVP? That's the landing craft mm -hmm. that we built the, that where you come in and lower the bow. LCBP, landing craft, vehicle and personnel. And uh, it was highly classified then because we were going to do an unexpected landing. And uh, the waves, and they had practice landings in South Carolina. And when the waves exceeded five feet, the breakers, they get the LCBP to broach and the waves to break into the boat, causing all sorts of problems. And then they called up the practice landing, saying, well, let's wait a couple of days until they get lower again. And I came back to, I had a job in the Pentagon, and I got made a library search, said, how high are the, that, are the breakers in, in the Azores in December, and found out that they were higher than the days they had sus suspended. They suspended at roughly five feet, and the average December height in the Azores was six feet in many places. And so I wondered what the thinking was, and I came home and reported to the captain of the commanding officer of the unit I was working with that suggested that it ought to be possible 
to predict and pick some low days like they were doing in, in the Carolinas. And I was very young and inexperienced and certainly not had no reputation. And he said, go monk and do what you're told. <laughs> and I found that so worrisome that I telephoned Harold Sverre, whom I'd met, was director here. And he came out by airplane, only took three landings to go from San Diego to Washington. Did you know that? No. So he had to change planes twice. And he sat down, we sat down together for a month and he agreed, we have both agreed, that it should be possible by using weather, uh, wind predictions to do that. And he had an international reputation, so it was agreed that 10 meteorologic officers, both Navy and Army, there was no Air Force, Navy and Army meteorologists should come to Scripps for months at a time before we started the landings in the Pacific Theater, because there it was crucial that we didn't get a surprise. And that's what was done for 12 months. So we actually trained over 100 officers in wave prediction, and we trained ourselves, which was more important. We learned more from our students than they learned from us. But by that time, there was a group of people in America who had thought about wave predictions. And the predictions went well in the Pacific Theater. There were some mistakes and some real problems, but as a whole, it was a success, and that carried over into the landings of Normandy, which were actually done not, we didn't know about the precise date, but two of our military students were assigned to the American group that was doing Normandy, and did a good prediction. In the early dawn of D-Day, June 6, 1944, the largest battle armada in history heads across 80 miles of rough channel water from England to the northern coast of France. 4,000 warships, transports, barges, craft of every kind in the invasion convoy. Here is the major striking force of the greatest military undertaking the world has yet known. After months of minute, intense tactical planning, here is the decisive thrust at Hitler's Europe. And it's there that I think your question came up about uh, why do they have occasional high waves. The curious thing was that they were equally spaced, which tides really are not, and that they... It's a bit of a joke. They occurred invariably Saturday nights, and we allowed ourselves the assumption that 
they were more due to Portuguese wine than meteorologic timing. The original landing was scheduled D-Day, 5th of June, and there was a very bad storm blowing over the Normandy beach, and Eisenhower decided to delay. I should have mentioned beforehand that the tides at Normandy, the spring tides, the big ones are 22 feet at Normandy beach, and the Allies had made the policy decision to land at low tide, whereas the Germans expected us, if we did land, to land at high tide. And uh, <clears throat> so that was the, the, the proposed strategy. Anyhow, Eisenhower delayed the landing for 24 hours. The next day, the prediction was that the waves would be somewhat lower, but still difficult. He decided to go in because the, another delay would have meant a delay by a fortnight for the next favorable tides. And the element of surprise would have been, would have been gone. The Germ Germans had decided that their, that their defenses were low, on low alert, and we did go in under difficult circumstances. Interesting thing is that Churchill, that Eisenhower wrote a letter of resignation, never mailed, to President Roosevelt in the case the landings on the 6th of June should have been a failure. We've seen that letter. And Churchill reported on the very same day, 6th June, to the House of Commons with the following words. Operation Neptune was the most difficult that had ever taken place. It involved tides, winds, waves, with conditions that could not and cannot be fully foreseen. What I failed to mention is that uh, it depended very significantly on accurate uh, tidal predictions, and there was no tide gauge at Normandy. There were tide gauges at Le Havre and Cherbourg, not so far away, and the British sent in a two-man submarine on a secret mission to measure tidal constants so that the tide predictions for Cherbourg and Arbe could be adjusted to give the right values for, for the landing beaches to avoid the Tarava disaster. And it, that succeeded very well. When, when we now think back about this era, the data we had was, was pitiful and uh, there was a great deal of luck involved. If I had to summarize it in a single sentence, I would say it was a daring extrapolation of pitiful data. And a very nice statement about it was written by Kinsman in his book on wind waves. There are some thousands of World War II veterans alive today who would have been dead in the surf had Serdab and Monk not done the best with what they had. The work you did on wave prediction and D-Day is absolutely amazing. Um, but I'd like us to switch to another topic uh, that has really been a major part of your career, uh, and that's climate change. 
we're all very aware of climate change today, at least most of us are. Um, but I was wondering, when did you first become aware of climate change as an issue? When I first came to Scripps in summer 39, when I was a junior at Caltech, and Roger had just gotten, Roger Revelle had just gotten his doctor's degree, and he often spoke about his interest in climate. So I became aware of the problem at the same time as I became aware of oceanography, fairly, and it shaded my view of what's happening. When I came to Scripps, 39, sea level was rising five centimeters a century, and it soon went up to 20. So it's gone through a 10 to 1 shift, and we were all very suspicious when something changes, because at the same time, the instrumentation for observing changed. And your first thought is that maybe by looking at a different way, you get different numbers. The difference was that all we knew about sea level is in harbors, because the only place where you had tide gauges was in shallow water harbors. And when we started measuring sea level changes in the deep sea, they were 10 times higher. And that obviously made you suspicious. And the peop various people looked into that very carefully at the conclusion accepted by everybody is that sea level really accel sea level rise really accelerated by strange accident at the same time at which we changed our measurements. For many people, you know, the immediate cause of climate change is the release of carbons into the atmosphere. Yes. But the oceans play a fundamental role in the way that the this release, the warmth is being displaced. Can you talk to the lay people who may not understand how involved the oceans are in global warming, how that happens? Sea level changes happened uh, long in the past before there were oceanographers, much older than we are. And the previous changes of sea level by astronomers had to do with the changes in perturbation from different planets and the distance of the Earth from the Sun, which changes by 2%. But we had very little information or appreciation that human beings can be a significant factor. And now they're the dominant factor. As a historian, um, one of the things I often teach uh, when, I, when I teach the, the survey of world history or even U.S. history is the idea of the medieval warm period and then the little ice age. Yeah. And uh, one of the um, critiques people often uh, that, that may be skeptical about climate change will say, well, look, there's been these patterns historically in the Earth's history um, of cooling, of warming, and then of cooling again. So what would you say to those that are skeptical why this is different? But well, it's more than that. There have been up, ups and downs ever since any kind of 
measurements have been taken. It's not just the little ice age. It's, as I say, you get a something like uh, a change like that just from being closer and and further from the sun, but also uh, Jupiter and Venus make a difference, so that it's a complicated problem. The astronomers really did a very good job of trying to straighten things out in the past. Really a good job, going back to 200 years or so. Um, you've been a scientist for 80 years. Scientists often question assumed wisdom and challenge it. So I was wondering, do you have any doubts about climate change? No. Is the data just so clear? Well, we understand it. It's taking place. It's measurable. And it doesn't have to be kept in impossibly low bounds. I have just a strong feeling from my World War II days that if we put the same amount of energy on keeping the German subs at a distance, then I think it's a problem of comparable difficulty and comparable ignorance that we can solve it. So after having an eye-opening conversation with Walter Monk, I took a ride across town to visit the home of Charles Kennel. Dr. Kennel is the Director Emeritus of Scripps Institution, and in 2014, he gave a paper at an APS meeting in which he talked about the current thinking surrounding climate science, and he takes on its denialists. Dr. Kennel starts his interview by talking about how he got interested in climate science during a period of transition in his own scientific career. So I was getting very restless, and besides... Uh, many of my friends now had risen to the position of being heads of big programs, directors of institute and so forth. I said, and there was a whole side of me. They said, what's wrong with me? Why not me? And so I was into this slough. Of, this is how I got into climate science. This was in this slough of despair. I got a phone call. Basically, just as I was dedicating this second book to Ellen, the phone rings. And Dan Golden, the administrator of NASA, calls me up. And he says, uh, he became subsequently a very close friend, uh, Charlie, I want you to come to Washington. And I more or less said, well, uh, I mean, to run your astrophysics program. And he said, no, 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 earth science. Earth science. Uh, we had talked about doing astrophysics, but not earth. Why do you want earth science? So he said, we're going to have to come to Washington and we'll have a long talk about it. And uh, you don't say no to the NASA administrator if you're a researcher. So I went to Washington, and uh, it was a weekend, and he had, a, at that point, an apartment in the, the Watergate complex. Uh, he was living in the dark because he'd had a, a, a detached retina operation, and he just had to sit there for hours in the dark. And so we had hours and hours of conversation about the space program. And the gist of it was, well, why do you want me to come to Washington to run your earth science program. And he said, and this was in 1993, that when you testify before Congress, um, half the people you are talking to won't believe a word that you say, mm. not one word. 
And those people will also believe that the climate scientists and the earth sciences are exaggerating the dangers of climate change and environmental change in order to feather their research nest. And uh, I have a program, uh, a huge program. In fact, the Earth Observing System, which when it was first proposed was going to be about twice the cost of the superconducting super collider, and then the largest scientific project ever conceived. I have this project, which the Congress believe uh, has been oversold and is much too expensive. So I want you to come to Washington, help me redesign this project and bring it closer to uh, financial reality and political reality. But at the same time, you're a reputable scientist, a member of the academy. I want you to work with the academy and develop, uh, develop all of the changes you make in this program with basic science in mind. I want the world to know that Earth science is in charge of mission to planet Earth. Take us back to 1993. Yeah. What is the climate problem in 1993. About the same as it is now. I, I'm thinking about the way that uh, climate change has developed in the 21st century, but I mean, who was aware of climate change in 1993? Was it just a, a cohort of scientists or was, was the public oh, getting more? Oh, oh no, oh no. Um, I, I believe that my script's predecessor as director, Roger Vell, briefed Lyndon Johnson on the climate change problem. And there was a major National Academy study in 1979 that raised it, raised climate change to the level of very high science policy. So I think within the scientific community and the government community, and consequently also the legislative community, the awareness of, the, of what people were saying about the climate change issue was, was fairly high. And already there were, there were deep suspicions about the, the implications of it and the truthfulness of the scientists and the, that, that in 1988, for example, the UN uh, founded the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And by the time I got to NASA, it had made its first global re report that was globally distributed. And that, of course, emphasized the seriousness of the problem. But it also emphasized uh, at that time, and it still, of course, is an issue, um, emphasize, you know, how much was uncertain about what we could predict. And it was very difficult to communicate to the public a physicist's certainty that the laws of physics say this is the way things will go, and to convince people then, first of all, that, it make, that, that this belief isn't just some sort of uh, belief that's imposed from the outside, but it actually has a pedigree, but after that, that it's sufficient uh, reason to get people to act, which it is not. So in 1996, uh, when I was uh, still at NASA, uh, I was speaking to the head of the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory in, in Princeton, and they were one of the two labs that had pioneered climate modeling in the United States, the other being the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And uh, we were talking about, about the projections of climate projections for the year 2000, uh, which were less extreme than today's projections. Uh, and so I, we were talking about it and the nuts and bolts. And then Jerry said, you know, just for the hell of it, we ran some projections, uh, sorry, projections for the year 2100. And uh, we ran some projections for the year 2200. 
And I said, well, what were they? I said, they were horrendous. And I said, well, how come you don't talk about them? And he said, nobody will believe us, it's so bad. So already at that time, uh, the climate scientists were uh, encountering a kind of systematic disbelief that was not organized politically, but uh, was a kind of denial, a psychological denial of the enormity of the problem, somewhat similar to the fact that many people can successfully deny until it's too late, till it's very late, the imminence of their own death. We couldn't survive if we thought every day that, you know, this is my last day or could be. There's just no point in that. So I think that we were beginning to encounter this profound denial. And when did the political mobilization against climate change develop? It had already started at that point. Um, and there, there were uh, groups that were beginning to uh, develop arguments that you and I would call spin. But the, the function of these arguments was to provide cognitive reinforcement to those people who wanted to sustain their own denial. Mm -hmm. They I don't have to worry about it because there's this little fact wrong and that little fact. And... Um, we now know, for example, that at about that time, Exxon had a, a very good uh, but small research group that participated fully in the climate community, and they reported back to Exxon um, what was going on. Their job was uh, to do that, uh, but we now know that Exxon decided for imminent and short-term business reasons that there was no point in, in responding at that time. You were talking about the denialists. Yeah. And I, I was wondering if we could take a moment mm -hmm. and rebut some of the things people say about climate change, um, because there are a lot of people that are skeptical about it for a whole host of reasons. Um, mm -hmm. So give me, give me one that here's one that the, the, the data is actually bad and that there is a lot of inference made in the data, which makes projections false. Long term projections are actually uh, you're unable to really predict them. Um, and the climate scientists always default to a uh, worst case scenario. Well, I think, I think it's the reverse. I, but um, with regard to the uh, uncertainty of the data, there's a kind of conceptual and linguistic uh, miscommunication. And in their paper published in the journal Global Environmental Change, the researchers argue vested interests and political figures have scammed scientists into using the language of deniers and causing an appearance of uncertainty. I'm not qualified to debate the science over climate change. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist. What I have said repeatedly is I'm not a scientist. Several politicians have deflected questions about climate change as well, excusing themselves as not scientists, which furthers public uncertainty. It's worked in the past. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Tobacco companies used perceived uncertainty in the medical community to push cigarettes after links to cancer and other diseases emerged. The ordinary use of uncertainty and the scientific use of uncertainty are very different. Um, to a scientist, you make a measurement and it has a certain statistical uncertainty. So what is it that we know exactly? We know exactly what the centroid of the data is, and we know exactly how uncertain it is. And we have some informed ideas about how those the, the uncertainties that we currently have will fold into the, our ability to forecast the future. So 
one of the major goals that many scientists have is to reduce the uncertainty in their knowledge. But there's also the basic ethical uh, principle of science that you don't make a statement without saying what the uncertainty is. That uncertainty is a guide for others to do work. So when a scientific paper comes out, there'll always be a statement about uncertainty someplace. And some words in the scientific uh, text or in the talks in particular that express the scientist's anxiety about the fact that the data aren't precise enough. These words are then transported into a public decision uh, which sort of views decisions in the, in the extreme case as binary. So, I mean, it's, it's, they sort of think of it as either this or that. So if it means it's uncertain, it means you don't know. You don't know. And in fact, what we do know is exactly the range of uncertainty. We have precise knowledge about the uncertainty. And this fact gets missed over and over and over again. Nobody really knows. I've, look, I'm somebody that gets it. And nobody really knows. It's not something that's so hard and fast. So that's, that's stage number one. They'll say the data un are uncertain, and no scientist will disagree. Right? You, they just, in their ethics. Um, it is a very sophisticated argument, not understandable easily by the public, um, how that uncertainty falls into your ability to project, because that involves detailed knowledge about how things interact and how uncertainties propagate from one area to another. But nonetheless, uh, you could say, the other thing, then you get accused of, of a political agenda if after you've uh, assembled a number of, of, um, of studies, all with differing uncertainties, and finally you find that they all point roughly in the same direction, and you try to make a general statement. The general statement that's been the most provocative is that humans are causing climate change. So there's uh, a medieval warm period, mm -hmm. a little ice age. Right. You know, the Earth goes through these patterns of warming and cooling. That's right. What's to say that we're not in a natural warming pattern right now? We are, in fact, in a natural warming period, right? We were coming out of the little ice age. Um, but at the same time, we have uh, retrospective models that can get the little ice age correct and can uh, calculate the, the rise of temperature. And then we could look at our own data and find that there's much more warming than that. And that there are too many other uh, features of the climate warming. The, the, the models predict that the lower atmosphere will warm and the upper atmosphere will cool. That's happening. Too many other points of agreement. Um, but this is not to say that, um, in fact, the natural climate cycles and the human interference with those climate cycles aren't going on simultaneously. They are. Uh, so in 2014, you gave a paper right. uh, that confronted climate change and also confronted some of the paradoxes that scientists face when mm -hmm. they deal with mm -hmm. climate change. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what this paper said? Well, uh, I got into it because, uh, because of a change in the, a natural change in the climate system 
probably uh, manipulated or uh, I don't like to use the word exacerbated at the moment, a natural change in the climate system that is interacting with the human factors. And what we know from observation is that if you measure the global temperature of the Earth, which is a number that only a physicist would love, it's a single number that tries to describe the progress of climate change, and uh, when that number is inserted into a computation, uh, it has a very specific meaning, and uh, it uh, and you can use it to, to predict the outcome. It, it's a descriptor of the outcome of many climate models. But now you try to measure the thing, the real temperature. So you, first of all, look on the satellites and you look at millions of, of temperature measurements made over the oceans and millions more temperature measurements made in the atmosphere. And you look at, at uh, measurements made with instruments on the ground, measurements made with airplanes, measurements made from satellites. You deal with all of their uncertainties and you come up with a number which is the global temperature today and the global temperature tomorrow and so on. You average that over a whole year and you get the global temperature that is used to diagnose how we're doing, if you will, with climate. And that temperature had grown more or less systematically from about 1977 all the way through to about the year 1998 or nine, when there was, and I don't think it's an accident, the big El Nino event. So that temperature had grown uh, like that on the curves, and then suddenly the rate of growth leveled off. And uh, in early days, the uh, spread of the data was such that if you cherry-picked the data, you could even say that the temperature between, say, 1998 and 2009 or 10 hadn't changed at all. And how did this feed into those that were denying climate change? Oh, the denialists jumped on this all along, and they said uh, they said two things. First of all, the climate isn't changing, uh, and uh, so why are we worried? Uh, and at that time, even though the global temperature wasn't growing, the number and, and severity of extreme climate events was growing. And those are the things that are actually people are worried about. We're worried about these hurricanes and fires and so forth. That, those, those events uh, didn't stop uh, increasing and they changed their nature. And what we began to see, I now understand, was a, a much altered behavior of the jet streams so that we now see Arctic air from the north coming very, bring the jet stream all the way down to Texas and so forth. Didn't know that at the time. But the denialists leapt on this and said there's no reason for action. And the other thing that they said was correct, that your climate models don't predict this hiatus in warming. So why should we trust the earlier predictions? A very potent argument. So uh, at that point, uh, I guess AP asked, asked me if I would give a talk on climate that had some public meaning to it. And I put together a paper uh, on the hiatus and, and what, the, what I thought the measurements were saying. Actually, that denial was, you know, this was power to them. And as you said, it was, it's a potent argument. Yes, it was. So during that period, how did you rebut that potent argument? 
mean, that must have been a huge challenge for not just you, but scientists in general. Yeah, well, that was what um, a lot of the paper was about, was how the climate science uh, community was struggling. Uh, they were looking for additional causes that would produce cooling. Uh, there was a thought that China was burning so much coal uh, that the coal was uh, creating haze that reduced the sunlight reaching the earth. Perhaps that was a cooling event. Maybe there were microvolcanoes that we hadn't taken into our account. And, and then finally there was an attempt just to scrub these data sets to look for errors in them and, and things that had been forgotten. Uh, there was an argument that um, that we were at the wrong phase of the solar cycle mm -hmm. and that that was cooling things off. Um, and so each of these were examined at the time. And at the end of the day, none the scientific community found none of those arguments uh, persuasive. And how does the scientific community come to a consensus like that? I think it's through fatigue. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, seriously, you see a whole bunch of papers and uh, and they they go at different aspects of the problem, and particularly on the reliability of the data and the possibility of, of influences that we hadn't taken into account. After a while, uh, it didn't become a good source of scientific papers because we eliminated most of the things that people had thought about. The denialists had... had uh, also made suggestions, um, and we tried to try to deal with those. So um, this was this was a deeply important issue, and there was something wrong with the science. And at that point, the the main uh, measurements that uh, were to disprove it, well, to show that the human climate change was continuing, uh, had not come through. But and I gave the paper in about 2014, and that was the year maybe 2015, when the Argo results came out. And Argo had been operating efficiently since about, well, it started in the early 2000s, but by 2005 or six, it had um, uh, gone into full operation. And what they were finding is that if you measured the heat content of the ocean, it was going up on average, every year, at the rate that the models would predict, that greenhouse warming would predict. And so what we were seeing was an overlay on the surface temperature of something else that was happening uh, whilst the general energy content of the ocean and ultimately when it's released to the atmosphere, the climate system uh, was continuing to increase at the rate that you would expect from the carbon dioxide concentration. So you had to trust the theoretician, you had to trust people with that statement because it was an ocean, well, mm -hmm. international ocean measurement vetted by hundreds and hundreds of people, but nonetheless. So the basic idea is that all the energy yeah, was getting- 93% of the energy from uh, global warming goes into the ocean anyhow. Mm -hmm. So that was the energy to look for. And that was that rate of increase uh, hadn't slowed down, and in fact, it accelerated somewhat. So what was happening was the surface atmospheric temperature and the surface temperature of the ocean, Pacific Ocean in particular, uh, were not growing at the rate. So something was missing in the, in the models, but nothing was missing in the, in the basic statement that the addition of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere increases the energy content of the climate system. Just the more fundamental way. And the surface temperature uh, 
is an imperfect measure of that increase. So how would you do it better? We wrote a paper where we said that, that uh, and here his experience with policy things that came in, 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 in many complicated systems, whether it's uh, the, the stock market or currency markets or international trade, um, you don't rely on one indicator. Mm. You have a basket. And at the end of the day, you look at, at the trends in a whole variety of areas, and humans have to make the judgment. And so that's what we said. We should have a basket of indicators. Mm -hmm. And the most important one has to be in that basket, and that is the rate of increase of ocean heat. And, and that has not changed, even if the surface temperature has... The surface temperature is going up yeah, and down, yeah, yeah. and I'll explain to you why in a minute. So the APS talk was about, do I really understand the physics mm -hmm. of this natural, after going through what the scientific community tried to do to, to conclude that the hiatus was actually real, wasn't due to some things that we hadn't mm -hmm. taken into account. Uh, so what actually was going on? What, what is the natural oscillation that was taking place? And uh, th that was being superposed. It was a bit like the recovery from the Little Ice Age. It mm -hmm. was going on, but in this particular case, for these 15 or 20 years, it was dominating uh, what we were observing. So as part of that write-up, I began to notice that two things happened at the same time. Uh, and the first thing that happened was clearly that the surface temperature, the global surface temperature measured and computed in the way I said, was in fact declining. Mm -hmm. But that hid the fact that the warming of the Arctic was accelerating. Yeah. There's, there's that's one of the, you, you identify all these paradoxes, and here's this incredible paradox yeah. that the, the Arctic is melting while everything else is cooling. That, that is correct. And the sea ice was retreating mm. and disappearing, and people knew that that was uh, going to destroy the habitat for many species, including the polar bear. So then there suddenly appeared lots and lots of uh, polar bears, uh, distressed polar bears on isolated ice lows. Polar bears depend on sea ice as a platform to hunt. But as that habitat warms and shrinks, the bears don't have access to food for long periods of time. The denialists and the sort of the spin community said, oh, they're just trying to pull at our heartstrings and the world can live without polar bears and so on. And so they, they did almost immediately uh, counter the pull on the heartstrings that um, if you were... If you didn't want to believe in it, they gave you a reason not to believe in it. Well, uh, in the writing of that paper, I tried to document what I could think of as what was going on, and it became a longer and longer paper. And yet I was stuck with this idea that the simultaneity of the sea ice retreat and the hiatus couldn't have been an accident. There had to be something that was, uh, that was connected them. And I didn't know how to prove it. Uh, but already there was a, a model that was being, shall I say, networked about in the professional community uh, that went something like this. Let me start with uh, sea ice in March. whole Arctic is covered with ice, and the ice is white. And so when you get sunlight coming in at that time, uh, about 80% of it or 90% is reflected back into space. But as the warming of the summer continues, the next thing that happens on the ice is that water melts and uh, it forms little puddles. And water 
the, that standing water absorbs much more energy than the ice, so the water gets hotter and the puddles get bigger. And finally, they punch through all the way at the, in August and September. They punch through all the way to the open ocean. And that ocean absorbs 93% of the sunlight falling on it. And so the ocean warms. And it's that warming of the ocean that only at the end of the summer creates a very warm period. And all of this energy that you've put into the ocean gets into the atmosphere. And of course, heat rises. So you get these big, if you will, geysers or plumes of warmed Arctic air that go to very high altitude. So walk me through this uh, theory that you put together after the, your 2014 talk again. Well, it, it begins with the sea ice retreating right. and the hiatus starting at the same time. And the temperature measurements that create the hiatus are largely those in the Pacific. And what we found was that the Pacific was cooling at the surface. Right. But there were new measurements uh, uh, that showed that despite that fact, uh, that more energy was being sequestered below the surface in the Pacific and going to depth. And the other thing that, the other clue was that during this period of time, this hiatus, the trade winds have been exceptionally strong. And so they pushed the water across the Pacific faster than before. Uh, Part of, that's part of the reason why it doesn't get heated as much. Mm -hmm. And then that's also part of the reason when it finally hits the Indonesian Philippine area, it's kind of baffled and the water has to go beneath. Yeah, so point. this is one of the things that really came out in your paper is that it's actually pushing the water down. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. And so the, the heat that you put into the ocean from the sun goes below the mm -hmm. surface and the surface temperature itself is lower than it would have been if it was just sitting there going more slowly. This was an easy thing to say and a hard thing to prove. And, uh, and everybody was saying it, but it was a hard thing to prove uh, that it was due to the sea ice. Mm -hmm. And so we invented a number of statistical techniques that took a year with uh, low sea ice and showed that it would be a year with high trade winds. One of the things that I was struck in your paper about was China and the rise of China and their consumption of coal. Coal consumption in the U.S., I believe, is going down, but how is it going globally? I think it's still probably going up. Um, if you weren't worried about the environment or public health, then coal would be a wonderful fuel. Uh, many countries have it. Um, fairly easy to get out, uh, and it produces energy. But the, the public health uh, issues were uh, salient, and, for instance, Britain... Even before the climate issue came up, Britain restrained its use of coal and, and, and did not dig up all the coal resources that it has in the British Isles. And I suspect the same thing will happen eventually to oil. But China used coal to jumpstart its economy. And the data that I showed in that paper stemmed from the first decade of the 21st century and in which they were adding, a, you know, an amazing number of coal, what, a coal plant a week, yeah. something yeah. like that. But already uh, by the turn of the tens and, and so forth, the pollution problem is becoming intolerable for China. Yeah. And it was due to coal. Yeah. It still is. So at that point, they realized they had to do something. And as a result, um, they have probably taken even though 
one part of their economy is going so rapidly that their use of coal is going up. They also have the most ambitious and aggressive programs to replace coal and to switch to renewables. And so they went, they didn't invent solar cells, nor did they invent the efficient way to make solar cells, but they've the world's largest producer. So th that right now you would be, if you talk to the scientists, you'd be uh, impressed by what they're doing to try to develop a cleaner uh, economy. They tell you their government is requiring you to do it. And if you go to their economic managers, you'll get a different story. So it's a split again, it's a split. China now, uh, I think, uh, emits about twice as much as we do. It's the world's leading emitter. But uh, in terms of historical emissions, the U.S. is the world leading emitter. And the reason that is important is that the CO2 that we put into the air 10, 15 years ago will still be there 85 years from now. And that CO2 is the one that's causing the climate change that we are now seeing. The, and so we are, we are going to be responsible for much of the pain and suffering from climate change for the next 50 years, more responsible than the Chinese. But they are going to be uh, held ethically um, because it's clear that the world cannot tolerate their rate of growth of use of carbon fuels. There is a sense that you know so much has been emitted, as you said, and is embedded in the climate system right now. What are some policy changes that could happen right now that would have a positive effect? I, I think what the economists suggest of a carbon tax mm -hmm. is probably the right thing to uh, promote uh, all sorts of ingenuity and creativity in carbon management. But the problem is that if we suddenly stop uh, CO2 or reduce CO2 emissions now, it actually is going to benefit people about 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. So the other thing to do uh, is to accept reality and to realize that there are going to be major impacts in climate change. There are going to be huge costs associated with it, and we have to prepare. Uh, and you'd like to do things like uh, urban planning and urban design um, and building design uh, and, and basically infuse throughout our thinking the sense of resilience that we have to be able to withstand a much more extreme climate in the future than now. And uh, the, the costs of doing that are going to be sufficiently high that it will also motivate you to buy an insurance policy and reduce your CO2 emissions by going, going green. Um, but even if we went to a completely renewable energy picture, all electric cars and all energy generated uh, by biofuels and solar, even if we went there, the climate change might be so painful uh, that uh, you'd want to do more. And the what is more now is to ask whether uh, you can actually remove carbon from the atmosphere hmm. and just take it out and make blocks of graphite and somehow sell the stuff and make products from it, find some sort of business model. All of this is wishful thinking. It's, I mean, it's, it's pie in the sky. Um, and, but the other thing is that we have to realize the scale of that industry. You'd have to have carbon extraction plants all over. 
-hmm. all over the world. So the scale of the investments required would have to be the scale of the investments that currently go into today's oil companies and fossil fuel industries. So they're creating the problem. So an enterprise of that scale is required to solve it. And so I don't think anybody, and this is one of David's major points, and anybody has thought through exactly how you talk about carbon renewal uh, or removal. And at the present time, the political discussion, it's going to be used uh, by the denialists who, who are increasingly not attacking this, the reality of the issue, but just attacking whether we should do anything about it. Um, and they'll say, well, why do we wait for carbon renewal? Right? Well, let's not do anything now. Only carbon renewal will come along. They have no idea of how hard the problem is or how big it is. And so I think that uh, in terms of the policy discussion, uh, it has to be as complete and as deep uh, as, as you can make it. Not because the public can understand it, but because at the time when they ask you what you should do, you will have been through all the alternatives and you'll have a clear and believable answer. It sounds like you don't think anything's reversible at this point. What's out there is out there, accepting the potential creation of this new industry that removes carbon from the air. But what about stopping it? Um, I know you talked a little bit about how uh, arbitrary you thought the two degree uh, goal was, but is the path we're on, can, can we stop it as a, as a society? Let's use the degree measure uh, just for conversation's sake. Um, we've gained about 1, 1.1 degrees since the industrial era began. And uh, we'll probably go to 1.5 degrees in the next 10, 15 years. And we could easily blow through the whole 2 degrees by 2040, 2050. We have no idea, actually, uh, what the risks to society and ecology will be, even at those levels. We have studies and all of that, but really, we've not been there. And uh, the Paris Treaty, uh, I think if everybody complied, and hardly anyone is, everyone complied with their promises, we'd have gotten to 3 degrees, 2.7. Uh, but the present course, uh, you know, if we just business as usual without much, uh, without an organized effort to reduce the rate of growth of carbon, well, the number of degrees don't matter anymore because we get to a point where um, people are beginning to think we're going to create irreversible changes in, uh, in the climate and ecologies, and some of these may be civilization-threatening. Um, Obviously, the sea ice is going to go, and we'll, we'll end up in a climate in which there won't be any Arctic sea ice, and every, every summer uh, this impact on the El Nino system will go to a, a different kind of climate. It'll behave differently. Now, is that uh, a disaster for humans? No, but it's irreversible that because you're putting greenhouse gases in and continuously in the background, you're never going to get that ice back. Mm -hmm. Never see it again. And in in uh, the lifetime of literate civilization, which is what we've had 2,500 years. Uh, so uh, that's irreversible. Um, the biologists will tell you the extinction rate is uh, unprecedented. That's irreversible. We don't get, once the species is gone, it's gone. We don't get them back. And a number of people are 
saying that we're going to get um, climate refugees. The environment will be so ravaged and agriculture failures will be so great that people will be on the move. Well, here's something that a denialist would jump on you for. We've already seen some climate refugees. Uh, after the uh, hurricane in uh, Puerto Rico, things got so bad that there was increased immigration to the U.S. They were climate refugees. But if you say that to people now, they'll say, oh my God, you're misusing language, you're overdoing it, you're overwrought, they just, you know, uh, they had a perfect right to go, they're not causing disruption, a lot of things that they'll say, but the facts are we're beginning to see people forced out because of a climate event. It, it's one thing to document that in the scientific thing, but how do you insert that into the political discussion in a way that makes it part of the discussion without provoking a reaction that is stronger than uh, your initiative. And that's, I think that's, that's, that's what we're seeing. So there, there are, are discussions about that, uh, discussions, um, I think, going on. Uh, and everybody will, on the outside, the analysis will say, this is catastrophist, right? You're just doing this in order to m politically manipulate the system. None of these things have happened. How can you be so sure they're happening? Mm -hmm. So I just have uh, one last question. Um, what type of advice would you give a young scientist today as they enter this world that is fraught with politics and policy? What should they be thinking about? I'll just start with a parable story. I went to the conference of the parties meeting in Marrakesh in 2016. And I'd never been to one of the big UN meetings before. We, Scripps is uh, uh, accredited to send representatives to the meetings, but I could never justify sending a bureaucrat in place of a working scientist or more, more recently students. Mm. But now that I'm emeritus, I could afford to pay my own way and did and was kind of a den father to the students as they went to this meeting. And this is where they get that acculturation in the science problem, the problem of climate science, that is so deeply important for determining their directions in later life. They're seeing what's going on, how the negotiations are going, other scientists, what other young people are doing. it. It's just incredibly deep for them. So the meeting occurred, and the U.S. election that elected Trump occurred in the middle of it. And we all stayed up uh, all night to watch the thing. It's called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. Uh, in the next couple of days, I had a bunch of bleary-eyed students, one by one, uh, come to me uh, in a deep worry and say, are we still going to get jobs? And uh, my answer was... Uh, it had three parts to it. The first was that the biggest loss uh, was the U.S. participation in the international community uh, and having a say in what the community does and influencing it. But as far as the U.S. performance in climate is concerned, we were doing as well or better than any of the other countries, that uh, the switch from uh, coal to natural gas had given us a CO2 record as good as Europe's without any policy intent, and that we had incredibly uh, inventive companies and uh, 
and scientists and on energy conservation, and they were going to sell to the international market regardless of what U.S. does internally, and they're going to design for that market, and that market was established by the Paris Conference. And so we're still going to perform, and I said that uh, predicted that the states that want to do it will actually have a very good record, and that's, that's what happened. So. Uh, the real loss is in international standing and friendship and influence. It's serious, yeah. but it's not everything. As far as this is concerned, they're continuing. Uh, if they don't do it, who will? You're needed even more than now. Yeah. Even more. We need you. You can't stop. And the third, if you're worried about your civil liberties, the state of California will protect you. And at that point, I, I can remember going to meetings... Uh, which people were thought they were going to be rounded up, and uh, that thus far has not come to pass. So I think that's the answer. Uh, objective science, climate science, is needed more than ever, and uh, and I think the response of Scripps has been wonderful. The, the new generation of students are much more concerned with uh, both multidisciplinary work, which is required, but also. Um, they are beginning to take and uh, discuss and get classes on, you know, how to communicate in the public and what works and what doesn't and, and become a lot more sophisticated about um, denialism, for example, and what, what happens when something gets into the literature. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about uh, climate change and science, uh, past and present. I hope it will be prove useful to somebody. <laughs> well, that's what we do at the APS. We promote useful knowledge. So, Good. Okay. Thanks. On February 8th, Walter Monk passed away at the age of 101. We learned of his passing just as we were about to release this podcast, and we realized that we had to do something special to honor Walter and his legacy. So we spoke to three of his closest colleagues about his career, a career that spanned three quarters of a century. First, I spoke with the other interviewee on this episode, Charles Kennel, who had this to say about Walter. I had known Walter by reputation for as long as I had been a scientist. He was obviously uh, an extremely big name in the field, but I, I first really met him on my first official uh, appearance as the new director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography when I uh, was invited to his uh, 80th birthday party at uh, his wonderful house in La Jolla. It was a memorable experience, and Walter did uh, everything that you might ask to introduce me to all the uh, Scripps faculty members and students and, and friends who were there. And later, I got to understand uh, Walter a lot better. I got to know him extremely well, and I became ever more impressed with him. One of the more interesting experiences uh, that I had with him was uh, a few years later, Walter walks into my office as director, and unlike other faculty on the campus, he believed that he really ought to obey the rules and tell his director when he was going to go away for an extended period of time. So he hobbled in and he said, uh, Charlie, I have to tell you, I'm going to be away in Boston for uh, at least a week. I have to I've uh, had a, I need hip replacement surgery. My last hip went out. Now I have to go back to the surgeon that I had and um, and get a new one. So about two weeks later, he comes back into my office, uh, 
still hobbling, uh, but he's had his replacement. But the most important thing was he said that the the, the de- surgery was delayed for a week and he had to stay in the area for a week. And so I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, I went down to Woods Hole and gave lectures. So there he was on a bad hip giving three lectures on uh, ocean science to our uh, most favorite competitors at Woods Hole. So that was Walter. I subsequently learned his academic record. About every five years, he would do something that was surprisingly new to the earth science community. He would do waves. He did ocean. He did tides. He did solid earth geophysics. And about every five years, he came up with something new that he started and that other people then would follow up. And he became a legend in that way. And the question was, well, how did Walter actually manage to do all of this? And I realized that he had a great mind, but he had an even greater temperament. Uh, He uh, was curious and interested, and he always enjoyed interacting with people. There was never a party that he didn't, that he was invited to, that he didn't go to. Uh, His beautiful house in La Jolla became a haven uh, for every oceanographer in the world. It was a legendary experience to visit Walter in his house. And he had a wonderful helpmate uh, during those uh, long creative years of his uh, um, research uh, in Judith Monk, his wife. She was a, an extraordinary person in her own life and own light. Uh, she was um, an architect, a creative person. She was kind of zany. She used to wear uh, funny hats to parties. And it was clear that they had a wonderful and supportive relationship. Uh, and so and Judith was uh, very prominent in the La Jolla community and uh, made sure that uh, even however distracted Walter was by mathematical oceanography, that Walter would be connected up emotionally with all sorts of people. And so it was that combination of, of uh, spirit and extraordinarily a supportive uh, helpmate and uh, a great mind that made him a great scientist for such an extraordinarily long period of time. Next, we're going to hear from Carl Wunsch, Professor Emeritus of Physical Oceanography from MIT, and Peter Worcester, Research Oceanographer and Senior Lecturer at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Walter and I discovered that we had very similar interests. I had started out as a geophysicist and uh, got diverted into physical oceanography, and um, uh, he was a physical oceanographer who got diverted into studies of the rotation of the Earth, about which uh, he and Gordon MacDonald uh, wrote an extremely important book that came out in 1960, uh, which, out of necessity, covered a very large uh, part of uh, solid Earth geophysics as well as physical oceanography. And so we we connected, and um, his and my first serious collaboration when we did more than exchange uh, letters as one then did or uh, conversations uh, over a drink uh, had to do with the idea that uh, sound in the sea could be exploited uh, for far more than it had been for scientific purposes. Most interest in the sound in the ocean uh, arose out of the military which was interested in uh, either finding submarines or hiding their own submarines from an enemy. 
And uh, he and I, uh, somewhat inadvertently, uh, realized that uh, given the technology of sound propagation and what we knew of the mathematics of the circulation of the ocean, we could build systems uh, that would measure the ocean as a whole, something that was very difficult to do with ships. And this is what became known as a ocean acoustic tomography. When uh, he and I and Peter Worcester, uh, his former student, uh, we wrote a book about that as well. Uh, he had numerous ideas that uh, have kept people working them out decades later. Uh, he had this talent for putting his finger on a problem uh, that nobody had really thought was very important uh, and uh, doing enough himself to show what the importance really was, and then often reading it, uh, uh, sometimes to come back 20 years later, uh, sometimes not at all. And one of his favorite sayings, uh, which I heard him say repeatedly, was that it was far more important to ask the right questions than it was to give the right answers. And uh, in a number of cases, uh, he proved to be wrong in the answers he gave, but he asked the right question. And the science uh, uh, came along and worked it out. And uh, to, to this day, as we speak, there are people still working on ideas that one can trace back uh, to Walter Monk 50 years ago and more. I met Walter uh, in the early 70s. I came to Scripps as a graduate student in 1972, and in the summer of 1973, I volunteered to work in Walter's lab. He was on the committee for my qualifying exam, and as we were walking back up the, the hill, after I'd finished my exam, he uh, asked if I'd like to work on transmitting sound in opposite directions in the ocean as a way to measure ocean currents. Sound travels a little bit faster with a current than against a current, so in principle you can use sound as a, a tool to measure large-scale ocean currents over, you know, tens to hundreds of kilometers, maybe even longer distances. And I said, that, that sounds really interesting, and that uh, started a lifelong relationship. I was a student, and I was his postdoc, and then I became his collaborator and uh, friend uh, ever since. I mean, it's really rather remarkable. We got along for however many years that is, 45 years. And so it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Walter was always very supportive, always very generous with credit. Uh, he made seminal contributions in so many different fields that it's difficult to point to a single legacy. Uh, Walter just loved to solve puzzles, and he had a wonderful intuition for what the important questions were, what questions were solvable, and where he could make the most impact. Uh, he didn't really liked to write the definitive papers. He liked to be involved at the very beginning of things, uh, where asking the questions was almost as important as giving the answers. One point in Walter's career, I was involved in uh, writing the uh, nominating letter for the Kyoto Prize, 
And even though I'd worked with him for many years at that point, I still didn't quite appreciate how many seminal contributions he made. When I when I went back and looked through his papers, uh, he made seminal contributions to the how swell propagated in the ocean, very famous work with Harold Sverdrup on making forecasts of the surf that were used in World War II. And he made uh, developments uh, in measuring ocean swell using bottom pressure sensors with a longtime engineer, Frank Snodgrass, that he worked with and from whom I learned how to do ocean engineering when I was a student. And that led in turn into using bottom pressure sensors of extremely high precision in the deep ocean. And that, that's a little bit interesting because that's a very hard problem. You're very measuring very small changes, millimeter changes in depth of the ocean where the water's 4,000 meters deep. And it was classic Walter. He knew David Packard and Hewlett Packard was making uh, pressure sensors for use in oil wells. And Walter convinced him to make special ones for the ocean that were designed to operate at four degrees C, the, about the temperature of the deep ocean. And Hewlett Packard made maybe 20 of those for Walter and Frank to use to measure deep sea tides. And then Walter used that information and developed a new way of analyzing tides called the response method and really revolutionized another field that people had thought was long dead. I mean, tides were thought to be something that we knew all about in the, the 19th century. That was a really remarkable piece of work. He made so many seminal contributions, it was, it's almost hard to believe it was all the same person. He liked to tell a story that he was uh, one of the early scientists to visit China, and he, the Chinese would ask him, about his father who had worked on uh, surf. Well, it wasn't his father, it was him, or you know, his uncle who had done this. They couldn't believe it was all the same person. It was just truly a remarkable career. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Brenna Holland and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the president's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt. 